Welcome to Making Waves, a radio program about sound art, produced by New Adventures in Sound Art. You're listening to Making Waves on WGXC. I'm your host, Michael Palumbo. On today's program, we'll listen to a conversation that I had with American composer Nicholas Collins, who's the keynote lecturer at the Toronto International Electroacoustic Symposium this August. For the symposium, and part of our Sound Travels concert series, Nicholas has a concert on August 20th, which he is sharing with Matt Rogalski. Nicholas will be performing three pieces, the first of which is titled Imperfect, which he describes as the sounds of a barely functional Soviet radio trickle through a maze of his favorite signal processing routines. The second piece, he's titled The Royal Touch, in which he writes, a homemade circuit reanimates a dead circuit board to create a chaotic multi-voice oscillator. Fishing weights are used to make nudgeable contacts between the two circuits. And finally, his third piece, in memoriam, Michel Weisswiss, Collins employs a candle's flickering to control four oscillators. So the conversation is about an hour long. Towards the end, Nicholas actually elaborates more on these pieces. Uh, but now let's go to the conversation and uh, enjoy. I ended up at a university, Wesleyan University right. in Connecticut, that I chose largely for the ethnomusicology program. I was a very, very keen student of Indian music. But also as a general university, I had no idea really what I wanted to do. It was only after meeting Lucier right. uh, very early on, I mean, in the first few days, that I said, aha. That was the know, first few days of you being at Wesleyan, is that correct? Uh, being a student. So he was a great advertisement for the avant-garde. He was uh, like Cage, he was a great spokesman for the, mm. the sort of lunatic fringe. And he was engaged in making pieces of music about unusual things that one at that time didn't associate with the music traditions. I mean, music to me, serious music, ultimately had to be about Bach, you know? But Lucier was doing pieces about bats and porpoises and architectural hmm. acoustics, all of which were things that were much more part of my background and interest. So he sort of, for better or for worse, uh, did the confidence building, you know, that that, right. that made it possible for me to 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 put on and deceive myself into thinking I could make this, I could do this hmm. if this is what a composer is, and I could do it. So I said, sure, what the hell, hmm. I'll become a a composer. And and one part of me was immersed in in electronics and electronic music through the sort of Tudor and Behrman tradition. One half was getting this sort of austere, minimalist education that was sort of in, engaged in in fundamental acoustics and 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 you know really really sort of core core issues of how sound sound behaves. So you know that's that's what kicked me off. And as 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 my life went on and I wandered around, you know that that, that sort of remained core. These ideas about you know, sort of exploring unusual ideas through music, working with acoustic phenomenon, and also being kind of engaged on a very intimate level with the actual technological building blocks. And what right, happened and I'm, was... I'm also, if I may interject for a moment here, mm, Nicholas, uh, what, what, what's, very, um, what's very striking about what you're talking about, and especially with regards to uh, what Lucier or Alvin Lucier um, helped instill, it sounds like, is building your gumption when it comes to playing with something that you're unfamiliar with, which is certainly, I'm sure, very important to your practice with experimenting with electronics. But it, is, is it fair to say that that's something that, that Alvin helped foster in you? And, and perhaps did it exist beforehand in other forms? 
Well, I mean, on the micro level, absolutely, uh, Lucier helped foster it. And I think that was endemic of that generation, the generation that began in a relatively conservative and traditional musical way. You know, all of those guys went to music school and conservatory. And then every one of them had the sort of anti-personnel mind of John Cage dropped into their life. And picking up the pieces afterwards meant, as, as Lucier used to say, going back to the year zero of music and questioning all of your assumptions. You know, so what Lucier did after writing, as he says, neoclassical music in a vaguely Stravinsky-esque style, is he went back to sound before humans. That is, he started to look at sound mm. from a biological and an acoustical standpoint. That is really year zero. Phil Glass went back to the first rule of counterpoint, no parallel fifths, and said, what if I only use parallel fifths? In other words, it was that sort of sense of reconstruction, but also it meant they were taking enormous risks. Yeah, enormous risks. Mm -hmm. They were throwing away mm -hmm. relatively secure career paths. It's like right. quitting when you're on the route to partnership at a law firm, right? right? So yeah, that was critical. But I think there's something more, which is I think North America has embraced a DIY culture since the start. You know, it, it's huh. that notion um, of having to make do, you know, having to having to make right. things because there wasn't a cobbler down the street, so you had to do it right. yourself, right? Honing and your I, resourcefulness, yeah. Honing your resourcefulness, right? And I think the great connection between the sort of Lucier generation of experimental music and, and the improvisers was this notion of risk, hmm. you know, and, and open form, which is mm -hmm. that... Cage and Lucien in particular had a real problem with the word improvisation and the idea of improvisation. But the fact remains there was a lot of what can only be called improvisation taking place in those open form scores of the time. And, mm. you know, the younger people coming out of more of a sort of a pop and jazz background had less semantic had fewer semantic hangups and and that was that was a big part of my of my life in the 80s and you know it's sort of how i learned orchestration to the degree that that you know i can look at an instrument and say ah you know i know what i can do with you took a, a skim through your dissertation and it, it, it does it does make me think about what you had written there which is to talk about yourself as an artist first and sort of a writer second and where i'm going with this is to say that you 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 are going with where your interest lies. Similarly, where uh, a composer wouldn't continue to write for a quartet if their interest is following in a, in a separate direction. Mm -hmm. um, and yet there are, there are these um, norms or uh, perceived boundaries or perhaps boundaries that are in some way real in that other people make them real. And it is riskier to set the, to go beyond them or to ignore them. Uh, it's exciting to go beyond them, you know, and sometimes... Mm. I, I find sometimes I don't even know I'm going beyond them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't even know they're there. I, I, I'm so blinded by my excitement to go in a different direction. Um, How so old are you? I, I'm 28. Okay. No, it's, it's yeah. just, I, you, ironically. Why do you ask? You, no, you push, a, you push a button that that's incredibly, it's bright red at the moment on my huh. dashboard. And that is the one that's sort of every now and then I come up with these big existential questions. Yeah, I'm a New Yorker, so I'm ridden with angst. And, and, and I mm. always try to come up with questions that will keep me up at night, 
just for no other hmm. reason than to keep me up at night. And hmm. and the one that's on my mind at the moment is has to do with this sort of idea of, of an experimental style and hmm. um, whether there is such a thing as an experimental style per se or whether it's kind of a phase people go through, like hmm. adolescence, you know? Hmm. Because I look at um, a lot of the composers who I knew when they were, say – in their in their 30s you know um and uh that sort of post cajun generation for example and a lot of them did incredibly formative pieces that are, are probably best described as open form that is the interpretation varied tremendously from one realization to another and the score such as it was wasn't about notating the events that happened from moment to moment in other words, I'm sitting in a room, the score says, you know, recycle something in the room again and again and again, basically. Right. And you never know what pitches you're going to get. He says you mm -hmm. can use different texts, so you don't even know that you're working with the same semantic content. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it's a little bit like you, you sort of say to a an ensemble sitting in a room, so like uh, play for a while and then play again and then play again and then play again, you know, which is you can't, mm -hmm. you can't know what's going to happen. Right. And if you look at Lucier's music now, um, it's much more through composed. In other words, he's still working with similar issues of acoustics and interference of sound and everything else, but he's writing scores and the notation is very specific. And between one performance and another, there's really no more variation than there would be between one performance of any other traditionally notated piece and another, a Bach partita or a Stravinsky octet, right? So, I'm stuck in this situation where I'm continuing to go down new alleys. In, in but wouldn't you say that uh, Lucier is also going down new alleys? It seems like he has, by your description of it, it seems that he's reinvented himself away from what you described in the earlier part of our discussion is that yes. even though it's something that's perhaps familiar to other composers I'm, I'm, I'm for him, it seems new. I miss sure. Myself. Okay. It's no, yeah. it's it, indeed. Um, Lucier has reinvented himself just like, you know, Reich has reinvented himself and Robert Ashley reinvented himself. Um, but the direction in all those composers has been towards more hyper notated, more specifically notated mm. work. I continue mm. to be engaged with open form structures. That is to say, mm -hmm. I've shifted my attention from from one form of technology and instrumentation to another. You know, I went from working primarily with circuits to working primarily with computers to working with improvisers to working with chamber ensembles in the years that I was living in Europe. And now I'm back to working with circuits a great deal now. And really the only unifying concept in all of that in terms of the direction my music is taken is this complete, almost masochistic inability to specify mm. anything mm -hmm. in advance of the performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> well, it's a yeah. career killer. I mean, yeah. But I mean, it's, I mean, the thing to my mind is like, I suppose I have a choice, but I don't, uh, I, I'm, I'm okay with being naive and saying, I don't know that I have a choice, you know? Well, I mean, here's the thing. If you're a coder and you're writing code for yourself, there's no reason not to try anything. If you're right. a part of a coding team, 
designing an upgrade to God forbid Microsoft Word, you know, the sure. last thing they need is someone who's going to try anything. You know, right, someone's going to be rogue. They yeah, have to have to you know sort of know what they're doing and fix the horrendous bugs that we have to deal with right. all the time when we use the code. Right. So you know, in 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 the arts, you very often have these this sense of of the unfettered and no practical limitations. In other words, no right. one will die if my code isn't written well. But if I'm working for Airbus, it's another problem. How does the, does this weigh on you on you in any way? I, I, I imagine you have your dark. Like, I don't know if it's. If, you know, I'm sure you know what I mean. Like it's not, not that it's uh, and not that having it be dark is necessarily a bad thing. It could just be part of your cycle. We all have that. Oh no! It was. It, it's not that it weighs on me. It's just that you mentioned something about you know following up on this notion of the DIY culture of you can try anything, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know i I tend to I tend to agree, and I tend to think of that as a, as kind of a fundamental motivation and. You know, it's like it's like if you happen to really like, I don't know, hot sauce, right. you, you kind of assume everybody likes hot sauce. And then you, yeah, right. you meet someone who, who <laughs> can't, right? Who just yeah. like, oh, God, I'd never. Oh, oh, it's so spicy. You know, and so it's it's my whole, if I have, as I say, if I have like one thread that's remained constant in my music since, since the age of 17, it's been this idea of risk and uncertainty. And, right. um, and, but I look around and I see very, very many people for whom that would seem to be the case, you know, God, when we first got together, you know, you, you, you loved ACDC and now you like, you moved on to, you know, Beyonce, you know, which is these things always surprise you when you look at your, at your buddies and, and you think, right. oh, so this is not a permanent state. This isn't like having opposable thumbs, you know, it's, it's, it's right. not an identifying an identifying trait. So no, no, I right. don't lose sleep about it, but it's just you're, you're mentioning that question of trying anything made me think, aha, maybe it's a generational thing uh, or an age thing, you know, that, that everybody yeah, I, I wonder about that. of feeling like I do God. wonder about that. I do wonder about that. And I think, but I do think that the, the iterative cycle and, and, and Lucier is going through another iteration that whatever it is that drives that seems to be game for anything or seems to be game for at least some things that we perhaps can't expect you know the, the right. thing and whatever it you, you put your finger on it which is that you have to look at the micro and the macro climate right which is right. Uh, someone like lucier's reinvention of himself and in the pop world you have brilliant examples like say bowie you know the people who who periodically reinvent themselves lose their fans in a certain area but then you know, develop in this in this new field, and for some people, it's it it's it's dismissed historically as simply eclectic pandering, and for mm. other people, it's considered like this very strong trait. I think Bowie Bowie and Lucier would be would be two good examples, and mm. that is indeed an example of the experimental method writ large, which is you're experimenting with your whole life. That is that is right. an open form life as opposed to a single open form score. And I don't know if I'm gutsy enough for complete open form life. I think my my musical styles shift much more slowly. But that notion that within each piece there is that sense of the risk and unpredictability is sort of critical. Right. And, well, and I think also uh, hmm. go ahead. Yeah, if I if I may also add, I think that um you know, my one of the joys that that I get out of uh, each new piece that I do, and I wonder if this is, I'm suspecting this may be the same for you, given our 
where we are in our conversation is that each piece affords you the opportunity, even if you don't set out to have it be this way, that you learn something new. Maybe we can get into hacking, right? This different way to, a, a, a way to bend the circuit that you didn't right. bend it before. Um, because that serves the piece, but you didn't expect to need it to serve the piece when you started because maybe your yeah. question wasn't formed or you're, now you're questioning your question. Your reflexivity is bringing you to this place where, you know, you are learning something about yourself and you're learning something about the work. And therefore, the next time you go to do something, that's the inventory you bring with you, you know. And so I'm wondering if that's perhaps describes what you're talking about. Sure, and and I think that that may other also be be a, a question of age, you know. Um, right, you keep coming back to that. I'm very curious about well, unpacking in the sense, that. You know, for example, you look at you, to get back to Lucia. You know, you you look at that run of pieces of Lucia's where you have music for solo performer in 1965, where he his yes. brainwaves up to drums, and then right, you yes. have you know you have Vespers for echolocation. You have I'm sitting in a room. Um, you get uh, uh, Queen of the South, this piece which you know resonates objects and, and distributes powder on it for the visualization of stuff. Um, you get music on a long thin wire. You get Bird in Person Dining. Each one of these pieces, these pieces are sonically unrelated to each other. Do you know what I mean? Right. And each right. one attacks a very different problem and uses very different material. Right. Um, Reich, uh, Lucier used to say that Reich, after he heard I'm sitting in a room, Steve Reich, he said, you know, Alvin, if, if I'd come up with that idea, I would have just done variations on that for years. And, and, mm. and he didn't. And, you know, Reich did. I mean, Reich had his tape loop pieces and then he moved so mm -hmm. very slowly from those to the first instrumental pieces that, that worked with it. So you could see this sort of gradual evolution in Reich's work. Mm -hmm. Lucier, it's, it's it's very different. He hopped from one thing to another to another, and you mm -hmm. know you're talking about that that sense of discovery that you have in your own work. Um, most composers later in their life work in a groove for a certain period of time. You know they get us. It's what um, uh, Morton Feldman used to quote. I think Philip Guston, uh, the painter, talking about being on a run. You know, which is that mm -hmm. you'll produce a series of paintings in a row that, that all deal with the same core issues. And you're just cranking them out as fast as you can to try to work through all the variations. And there are composers that work that way, too. You know, they find like a kind of a, a mode, a, 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 an idea, a format, mm -hmm. a structure, and then they run mm -hmm. variations. Lucien right. has done this with the beating, the standing wave pieces in pieces you know he did in memoriam john higgins in the early 80s for clarinet and sine wave and he's still doing pieces that have the same mechanism of operation and it's just different orchestration and different instrumentation and again you know part of my part of my my masochistic career killing um <laughs> uh personality is that when i come up with a piece that works well with a certain set of materials and ideas. It's sort of the last thing I want to do is do variation on that one. And it's 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 unfortunate because some of these pieces are incredibly condensed. You know, I have like 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 a like a 12 or 15 minute piece that represents a sort of culmination of years and years and years of thinking in a particular area. And if I were a different composer, maybe if I were a better composer, I would I would do a series of variations on that, such that say, I could have a full full album or a full mm. concert program of just that 
style of work. But sadly, <laughs> sadly, I, I, yeah. I, I don't do that. What I do is I say, okay, that is you know a succinct statement of these concerns. Let's go on to something else. And, the and I believe is, we're very similar in this way because I, I also you know killing. I don't know if it's called killing your darlings, but I just always have naturally gravitated away from something once I felt it was done. Right. Uh, but but indeed, I- exhausting or. Um, trying to etch away at the core of whatever it is that's tickling my mind that I need to express it in whichever way possible. Um, right. Sure, indeed. I mean, you know, I have several feedback, thinking about uh, s- feedback in a, in a systems perspective, um, right. a number of pieces like that, that in, in involved that. They're all very different, but I'm, I'm very confident that eventually feedback isn't going to be interesting and I may never revisit it. And indeed, right. there are so many things I could count I couldn't. I can't keep track of the number of things that I've walked away from where people have said to me, "Oh, whatever happened to that thing?" Or, right. "Why aren't you still pursuing that?" Um, right. And I've I've also had. Uh, I mean, Nicholas, it's, I've had <laughs> probably several times a day. Oh, why didn't I? <laughs> it's a shame that I didn't do an album of this. Or it's I don't right. know why didn't I yeah. do this. Um, yeah. And yet here we are talking about this, and it's not stopping us from continuing to do what what we seems to naturally or or perhaps with purpose are excited to continue to just follow. Um, and neither it's, it's of us in, is the other's paid therapist. Yeah, yeah right. right. <laughs> sure, sure. You get this one for uh, free. I don't know about you, but I'm not, I'm not lying down right now. There we go. No, neither yeah. am I. Even though the video is off on the Skype, I can assure you I'm in a very respectable position. Okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> it's good to know, isn't it? That's very good to know. Okay. But it addresses that that question of you know how how style evolves and right. um, how you how you adapt to the circumstances. I mean, the other thing is a question right. of available resources. And again, I think that's a very North American thing. You know, we mm. build with wood on this continent in a way that they haven't in Europe for centuries, because mm. we still have forests and we've had even bigger ones in recent memory, and Europe hasn't had forests massive enough to support a, a cheap lumber industry for ages right. you know so right. we we go with we go with the the resources that are available and you know when i was a student that was particular things especially in terms of say uh aesthetic or or professorial or intellectual resources and when i was in new york it it, it was the improvisers I, I lived in Europe for most of the 90s. I ran the Stein Foundation in Amsterdam. And because my mm. day job was basically supervising uh, technical development and technical projects, it was a time in which I, I personally made my biggest reach out into the world of, of more traditional instruments because it was kind of you know like, like tr- trying to leave the office behind as much as possible when I wasn't there. And it was, again, an interesting moment, like the integrated circuit development of the... 70s, which is that mm-hmm. for years, and part of the reason why I enjoyed so much working with improvisers, um, so-called classical music ensembles, even contemporary ones, wouldn't touch my work, the work of my colleagues, or even to, to a great degree until sort of the, the middle or end of the 80s, the work of, of Lucier's generation. Which is why Phil Glass and Steve Reich and Robert Ashley and even Lucier basically had to form their own ensembles, right? It was a sort of rock band mentality of, you know, no one else is going to play this stuff. So 
I, I went with the improvisers. Well, in the 90s in Europe, things were starting to change. And you had all these young ensembles, especially in cultures that had um, good state support, right? Like Holland and Germany, Scandinavia, where you had these groups that actually wanted to play unusual pieces. They wanted to do open form scores. They wanted to do non-traditionally notated stuff. So that was a, a big branching out for me. And I, I was, you know, it was like, um, you know, suddenly going for a weekend with rich uncle who can afford to get you, you know, not just the cheapest thing on the menu when you go out to, to lunch and hmm. you get fat, you get fat. Yeah. But I came back, um, I lived in Holland for a long time. And then in Berlin, I had a DAD, which was terrific. And I nursed it along uh, after it went you know, finished. I just kept living there for a few more years. What's a DAAD? Sorry? Oh, it's a wonderful grant where you're a composer oh, in residence for the city of Berlin. Uh, it was an oh, artist residency program that, that dated back to the Cold War when they were trying to bring people in. And there was there, every yeah. year they would have one painter, one, you know, one artist, one composer, one writer, you know, that sort of thing. So that was very nice. And, um, but then I ran out of money. I had two small kids in international schools and I finally took a teaching job. And my, my, my parents were academics and I had no particular interest in going that route, but I did it out of survival. And I ended up hmm. very odd position. I took a job as in a department of sound at an art school, the school of the art right. Institute in Chicago, in Chicago. Right? right. And it's, it's famous because it's the oldest sound art department in America. It basically predates common usage of the term. It goes back to the seventies. And it's always been basically a, a, an experimental music program hidden in an art school that believes hmm. sound is just another medium i mean it's like working mm -hmm. with video or sculpture or paper or whatever and it was very open i could do anything I, I came in with the lure of designing an mfa program for them which you know i i'm a startup kind of guy i like to do that yeah and yeah. what's weird is considering that chicago is a great music city i mean it's got all the music styles around i never really connected with the chamber ensemble scene that i had been working right. on working with in Europe, that, that that one part of the music scene in Chicago seemed very conservative when I got here. It's interesting to think that, so you say the sort of uh, sort of wild approach and perhaps not following rules necessarily. I don't know how to uh, distill it as you did, but but in Europe you were able to work with those ensembles and they existed and, uh, and they, were, they were game to play with you. Interesting that you come back and you're working in Chicago and I'm sure it's there were maybe other other cities that might have supported what you were going for, but it is curious that the place that you came from, or not, you didn't come from Chicago, but um, that it's different. Do you know? Yeah, is, I think I think it's. Uh, yeah, I, I I'm not sure exactly why it is. I you know I wouldn't want to speculate. It's just sure. I think that a part of it was generational. I I think it was yeah. that there was a new generation of players coming up in Europe who who were really trying to do something different than the preceding right. ones, and there wasn't as established a, a chamber music uh, economy in America. So there right. was maybe there wasn't right. that sense of a. Uh, us versus them as much and it's obviously right. changed a lot i mean i would have to say that in the last five five to ten years we've gotten the emergence of a lot of more experimental new music ensembles but the right. fact is that at the time that i moved here in 99 it right. just they were wasn't. trying to plant their flag right you know? yeah and there, and there wasn't there yeah. wasn't a lot going on hmm. but my situation was sort of odd which is that you know uh, Although I come from a, you know, my, my family is much more engaged in visual arts and music, my parents and stuff. But, but 
when I came to an art school, I was in this position of, you know, sort of thinking of myself as a composer, but put back in this, you know, visual art world and um, trying to work out a vocabulary for talking about these ideas. And of course, it's much easier to talk about Alvin Lussier to an artist than it would be, say, to talk about um, uh, Anton Webern in terms of the, the mm. ideas and the imagery and, and, and the language that you can use to describe the work. So I was I was rooted in a good place for doing it. Yeah. But the the, the right. most interesting discovery was that we this again you know sort of key 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 moment like a zeitgeisty thing, which is the nature of the tools that artists young artists were working with in '99 when I started this. It was a very computer centric art school. Basically, everybody right. but the painters were working with computers and i realized mm. that and you know this is something i i say on any occasion so if you've heard it before don't scream but control x control v it's the most mm. powerful artist tool on earth in other words it's as if you had a mm. pencil that could you know both draw and you know cut video and cut audio and cut graphic images and rearrange html code on a website in other words Mm-hmm. It's this sort of meta editing tool, and if you right look and a at, learning tool as well. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at Final Cut Pro and you look at Pro Tools, um, and you look at Microsoft Word, it's all the same command right. structure, right? Right. So you have this generation of of young computer literate kids who don't care what the material is because mm. it, they can manip- manipulate it all. You know, right. as I say, unless you're a right. painter. You know, you, you have this one generic skill that you can apply to any material. So this right. was amazing because what it meant yeah. was that you had this great fluidity of people who were working in the exact same technical studio that you would get at a music school. But they were bringing in a background in film editing and using that to construct their sound work. And um, so it was sort of interesting. But the other thing that's, that... that was intriguing was the was the sort of conflict between that power and certain sort of innate instincts that seem pretty universal with artists which is even an artist who works with a computer started out messy you know every kid starts out being messy on a piece of paper even Even if if they're using a mouse in parallel, I swear to you, there is not a child who isn't scribbling. And the problem, the problem with computers, even now, you know, is that it's really difficult to be messy with a computer. It's really difficult to to be tactile with a computer. And obviously, Mm. there's a huge amount of investment in tactility and, and haptic research and everything else like that. Sure. But it's still it's 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 not there. It's not there. So I had this odd system in my students, which is that they, they loved electronic sound and they loved the sound world that they got in the offline environment of, of computer-based production. But they wanted to get messy. And mm-hmm. so they discovered that I had this ancient black art in my kit bag, you know, which was making little circuits. And, you know, this was a year that that circuit bending really took off, even though uh, Reed Gazala had been writing about this stuff since the early 90s. You know, 99, I always say it was the year of the digital hangover. 
You know, hmm. everybody woke up one day clutching their head and said, oh, I am never drinking a piece of software again. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to have milk and juice and I'm going to I'm going right. to do things with my banjo. And, and we all know what happens banjo. after that after that conversation, though. Right. Yeah. And then by <laughs> right back at yeah. it's like maybe yeah. just a beer, you know. <laughs> yeah. So but yeah, the point sure. is that, that that's. And if I if I may interject, I always yeah. know that it's it's nighttime when the birds are chirping in the morning, and I've been coding <laughs> since oh, yeah. you know eight in the eight at night, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, so yeah. so they said, you know, can you teach a class in this stuff? And that was sort of interesting because the bending thing was everywhere. You didn't need a class in bending. I mean, you just had to go online and take a risk. Right. But they wanted to know a little bit more, you know, they had that sort of schooly thing. And so I put together this class, I test drove it in the summer school. It was kind of taking everything that I had sort of learned starting out in circuitry and kind of adapting it to, to, to you know, updating the technology slightly, updating the aesthetic, making it aesthetically very neutral. So it wasn't, you know, it would be as applicable to someone who wanted to do drum samples for techno as someone who wanted to, you know, make a realization of a cage piece. And um, I kind of put together this this curriculum and it was, it was quite successful. Um, You know, I mean, how could it not be? As my wife said, when it made full enrollment, what do you expect when you offer a course called Game Boy for credit? You know, which is that it was, it was kind of a no brainer and, and it was very, uh, it's a pleasurable thing to do. And, and, and it's a very nice thing to do with the group. You can actually have 25 people making circuits in a room at the same time and all of them yes. coming out of little speakers. And it's difficult to do that with coding. It's, and, and it's obviously difficult to do that, say, in a guitar master class. And so it had a nice social feel. And I worked out a, like a PDF handout thing for them because I was constantly making messy drawings on the board. And they wanted, you know, they wanted something they could look down at the table. On. And then this PDF got out. And and somebody passed it on to a, to an editor at a publishing house, and 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 right. eventually, you know, this they was two thousand and six is when it re- was released. Right? Yeah, and so the so class it, was it, yeah the year and before. I know I had been going on for a couple of years. I'd been sort of cool. working working the material, but the point is that then yeah. it kind of escaped sure. in the wild like some horrible invasive species, you know, like <laughs> like Asian carp, and it it really, I thought the publisher was insane to put out the book. But obviously he wasn't because it, it, it turns out it was their it's their it's still their best selling international books because of course right. you really don't have to read to be able to use it, which means it works sure. in different languages. And yeah. um so the long and the short of it is that th- this deep history of mine came back out and was sort of I had to reinvent it and restructure it for the purposes of teaching. And then of course because my students were so fabulously incompetent, you know, the risk factor ratcheted up several notches. And, you know, we were bad engineers when we were trying to design our circuits at Tudor's lap in the 70s, but we were trying very hard to be good engineers. And my students had this wonderful attitude, this sort of post-bending attitude of who cares? And and it was very, um, very liberating for me. And I began to sort yeah. of push at the edge of what could be done with circuits in a way that I hadn't done the first time around. And, you know, what What did you do? Well, you know, to contrast, you know, circuit bending, a lot of it is based on this idea of you just make random connections on the toy and you see what works. And 
you know, if you use that from a design standpoint to do ground up engineering, you end up with very different designs than if you say, I'm going to start with this schematic from a suggested right. application. And tweak. And, and tweak, right? And I did right. a workshop early on in, in the UK where there was this guy who was actually a, a computer science professor. He was, he was very well established, very high end computer science guy getting a second degree in music. And I mentioned after I'd sort of introduced this sort of basic oscillator circuit. And I said, you know, you put this part here, you put this part here, it works, but you can actually make completely random connections on this chip. Nothing's going to die, and, and who knows, you might discover something interesting. And he said, hang on a second. You tell me you can actually make random connections in designing this thing and, and nothing bad will happen? <laughs> I said, no, of, of course not. Why, why would anything bad happen? He says, well, the only reason I ask is I, I'm a computer scientist. I've been doing computer programming all my life. And I've never been able to write a random program. Huh. And I've always wanted to be able to do it. And I've worked on meta tools that would allow one to do random programming. And it's just a really thorny issue. Yeah. And it's very true. If you write code, you know that it either runs or it doesn't. You don't right. get those sort of wonderful in-between states. In-betweens, I was going to say, right. You know? Yeah. And, um, and would, so, would you care to share who this gentleman is? Uh, his name is John Bowers. And cool. he's he's um, he's based in the UK and in Sweden, and uh, he does a lot of writing. He does he does papers nine now and then, and he moves back and forth between the software and hardware world. And he's really embraced the uh, the irrational aspects of of uh, yeah. hardware based practice. So in any case, I think I think this um, for for a guy who who thought of himself as as having gone pretty far down the what the mm. hell, uh, we can try mm. anything path. You know, the, the mm. students did give me a little kick in the pants and made me realize yeah. it's always a, a level higher. You could take it to the sort of 11 of indeterminacy. And, um, and that was very good. And, and it all goes, you know, as I say, it's another, another, I don't know, sort of support point of this idea of, of feeding off of whatever community you find yourself in and and right. you know after after the hoity-toity state supported ensembles of of um europe ending up in this odd sort of uh visual art sound art crossover environment and of course the timing was perfect because i mean you can sort of date the re-emergence of the term sound art into general vocabulary at the sure. you know the turn of the millennium, in other words, that's sort of when it began to be visible in terms of um, a movement. As... Well, in, 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 in addition to in addition to that, within the last ten or fifteen years, do-it-yourself electronics has received considerable boosts with um, you know Arduino and Raspberry Pi and yeah. uh, LilyPad and, and and wearables and um, and they're made in such a way that that anyone can use them, right? Yeah, I mean it's 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 actually very beautiful the way the open source thing has helped because yes. you know, with its time we made essentially the world's first Arduino for artists. But oh, really? it was over designed like hell. It was called the Sensor Lab. It basically cost twenty five hundred dollars, you know. Oh dear. And um, <laughs> yeah, oh dear, right. And so, you know, <laughs> elaborate kind of commissioning program for artists to work with this thing. And it was terrific and it was wonderful. But clearly the Arduino was what the world needed, and it came 
just the right time in terms of, you know, after the, 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 the sort of resurgence of bending made people feel pretty casual about making electronic connections and, you know, people were looking at a, at, at a way to physicalize computing and it became the glue. Uh, it was really, really critical development. And the open source thing is great because, you know, I have these students who are terrible coders, and but they don't even think about it. They start right up by simply saying, mm. oh, you know, I want to control motor speed with the Arduino. So they just Google motor speed Arduino code right. and cut and paste. Right. And they don't have any idea right. what they're doing, but it runs. And that's, again, it's sort of like circuit bending. You know, you don't know what you're doing, but you do it and it runs. So well, it's also narrowing the distance between uh, the, the initial spark of the idea, then having to implement it so that you can go and continue with the, we could say there's probably several streams of creative processes at work, but trying to get from, I have this idea to, I want to see what happens. Right. Um, and, and indeed, if there was that, if, the, if, if they weren't able to do that, they would have to go through the steps of creating it. And who knows what would be the offshoots of that, which would be potentially advantageous and certainly in, in our approaches which is to just follow um but I, I we're both people i mean i'm certainly someone i can say for myself as someone who definitely benefits from being able to just copy paste and then reverse engineer what whatever i need to serve the purpose but indeed it, it does sort of it it aids in that ability to to sort of continue to work in real time with my <laughs> creative interest or my creative spark does that make sense no, it, it does. It, it makes perfect sense because, um, I mean, I, I remember watching this, working with David Tudor, that, that he'd have a piece yeah. and he'd spend, he'd spend weeks or months building a circuit for this right. piece, you know? Right. And then, I mean, it would be very, very, he was a very sophisticated designer in terms of what he did. Yeah. And these things were complicated. And then he'd say, but, you know, the way this piece is planned, the way it's composed... I actually need 40 of these circuits. There have to right. be 40 operating in parallel. Right. And so what he would do is he would make tapes. He would make cassettes of run-throughs with the circuit. And then his final performance was all these tapes mixed plus the one live one. And right. that was the solution he had to take just because everything was so time-consuming. Now, right. when you spend a long time making something, you get a certain understanding of it that you don't when you simply download and copy and paste the code. Right. But on the other hand, you know, do, do you want every guitarist to have to whittle their own guitar before they, right. you know, write the chords for Jumping Jack Flash? No. Right. You know, that, that that's not an efficient use of resources. So I think that right. there, there's a medium. I think there's a time in your life as an artist where obviously you need to engage with the technology. And I'm forgive mm -hmm. me for being chauvinistic here, but part of the reason why American electronic music from the late 60s and 70s is so cool is because, you know, these people got deeply involved in the technology itself. And the European electronic music of the time was mediated by engineers, which meant that the composer never actually picked up a soldering iron, you know, hmm. and never tried to debug a circuit. And it just, it has hmm. a different sound. It has right. a different sound. Yeah, it's 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 interesting to think about there a I'm guitarist having to... What's that? I said, there I'm making enemies. You're defaming, making enemies? Yeah, defaming European <laughs> avant-garde electronic <laughs> music. I said it. Oh, God. You, you did it. You went there. And... Went. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm struck by, I mean, one of the things, I mean, thinking about a guitarist having to build their own guitar, if they've never played it, how do they know what it's, what they want it to be like, you know? Uh, um, this is a, this is a, this was a big problem at Stein, for example, when I was there right. in the 90s as artistic director. It was this sort of heyday of alternative controllers. And, yeah. you know, we'd have 60 artists a year coming in to work on projects. And, you know, every one of them had this idea. I got this idea for this crazy instrument. And, you know, right. it was sort of putting the cart before the horse, you know, which is mm. designing an instrument. It's not even like you're you're trying to design a guitar without having played the guitar. It's like you're designing an instrument for which no music exists yet hoping right. you'll be able to write music on it you know the, the right sort, right and it's a very very risky proposition in the sense that you know for every 20 projects we did we had maybe one that produced quality interesting work out of it right you know when you do get that piece yeah. of course it's fabulous and john rose is one of the great uh you know, sort of success stories of Stein, the, the, these various instruments he built there. Uh, brilliant, brilliant. Um, but then we had a lot of ones that just were dead ends. It's very luring to have this possibility of, I'm going to make the ultimate thing, I'm going to make the ultimate instrument. And when I first got into Pure Data, I was like, oh, I'm going to make the ultimate guitar processor and it's going to be able to do everything. Right. And I realized very quickly that if it can do everything, then I'm probably never going to practice it because... I'm always going to be making new things and I'll never know how to do anything because I won't remember what I did two weeks ago, you know? This has been an issue in the sort of alternate instrument community for mm. ages. Yeah. And, uh, you know, which is part of the reason why you want to listen to Derek Bailey play yeah, guitar right. is that's all he does. And mm. he's been doing it a long time and he played beautifully and we all miss him now. Um, other people, you know, it is that almost that idea of a prop, you know, that you design this thing, you make a piece with it, then you design this thing, you make a piece mm -hmm. with it, and there's no depth. Uh, Michelle Weisfitch was, was sort of a, a stellar example for a lot of people because, you know, he had this one weird, wacky instrument that could have been a throwaway, but he spent years just making pieces for that, you know, until he finally, you know, he just... He felt like he had to move on, but he never he never did that sort of flitting about from one thing to another to another. And he treated it as an instrument that had to be rehearsed and practiced mm -hmm. on. And, you know, I mean, when I was with, with working with Tudor, he had this wonderful ensemble called Composers Inside Electronics. And, and, you know, the sort of the rallying cry of them, as reflected in their title, was that you have a um, you have a circuit and the circuit, as it suggests, particular pieces of music or a particular piece of music. It's that sort of cliche of the circuit as score, right? Right. And therefore, you know, you can't expect a circuit to do more than one piece, just like right. you can't expect that, you know, piece of sheet music to be more than one piece. Right. You're composing the instrument rather than for the instrument. Yeah. And that's no. that's always been, you know, that's been a slightly touchy issue. And I know that a lot of composers who went into circuit work were very sort of sensitive about being called instrument builders hmm. instead of composers, right? Hmm. You, yeah. Well, what do you think? Why is that? Why do you think that is? Ego. It's classism and ego, which hmm. is that, that that generation that came from a from a classical background, Lucier's generation. 
you know, the reason they shunned the word impro improvisation was that, you know, they had invested in a compositional career. They felt of themselves, they felt that they were composers. Hmm. And they had this sort of quasi-race thing about improvisation is a lower art form. And they were yeah. trying to protect some kind of a brand or, or, or what yeah. have you. Yeah. 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 And I think that, you know, there's this idea that there's a kind of cultural pecking order and a composer mm. or an artist is, is a loftier position than a luthier or a paintbrush maker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I struggle with what to call myself all the time. I, I printed business cards two years ago and put composer on it. And as soon as I saw it, I thought that's not what I am. And I still have yeah. these cards because I don't want to print new ones. But yeah. I think very recent, only very recently, I saw something in a book, uh, a book titled Emergence by Stephen Johnson. I think I'm calling myself a control artist now, um, which seems <laughs> appropriate in a number of fronts. But 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 you, it's interesting when you mention ego. I mean, you 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 call yourself an artist and an improviser and a composer, and you listed a couple of other uh, descriptions in that. Um, in the end of that dissertation, and I'm sure that's not the only place you've you've said it. Installation artist was the other one, right? And writer, um, loser, loser, great, great, loser. Loser. yeah. <laughs> what have you lost recently? Oh, you know, I just like it, you know, I, I look around, and there are those days when you think, God, you know, the MBA would have been a more practical thing to do. Sure, but now I, I don't get that as much anymore. I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling reasonably comfortable. I will never, I will never ascend into a certain economic strata but on the other hand i i somehow have gotten away with doing what i want to do for a very long period of time which is great but you, you know? know i gotta yeah. say i i had this great grant a thomas watson foundation a watson fellowship when i got out of college and i yeah. was traveling all over europe for a year looking at at scenes of experimental music and art and this was in 76 77 where when when it was really a nascent form and and mm -hmm. now it seems like duh but back then, I gathered that there was some some uh, adventurousness to it, and and it you know you're you're twenty whatever twenty one twenty two, and you're traveling around, and every every youth hostel you sign into, you, there's this you name profession, and you know you're putting down student 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 because mm -hmm. that's what you've been doing all your life, and then I remember I checked into a hostel in Copenhagen, and I said, wait a second, and I wrote composer, yeah yeah yeah. And the guy turns the ledger around, you know, and like every Scandinavian, he probably speaks better English than I do. Huh. And um, he looks at it and he says, oh, you're a composer. Wow, this is the first time we've ever had a typesetter staying in our huh. hostel. Huh. So there you go. It can turn right. around and bite you. Yeah, sure. So how's your typesetting now? Terrible. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm probably even worse as a typesetter than I am as a composer. So there you go. Huh. Yeah, well, you've tried your hand at it. At I've least. tried my hand. <laughs> you, I, uh, just to, to bring it back to the piece that you're doing in Sound Travels, unstable electronic circuits are messy. Rational computer software, perhaps we can say it's not messy. I was talking to a curator recently, Michael Tanaka, here in Toronto. She was telling me about this artist named Ruin Electronics who was trying to make glitch video, but every time he would go to render the project, the encoding compression would then filter out all of the, the artifacts that he had intentionally put in there. So it's, it's a very, I think that's a, an interesting way of sort of providing an example for how computers don't, don't aid us in this messy approach, perhaps a messy result. But in, in thinking about how, how you think through software, how you think through, we could say, computer hardware, and how you think through your circuitry, which I would assume has 
well, I'm not going to assume. I'm going to let you talk about that. But in thinking in these different frames, I guess we could say, or, or, or systems, how have you arrived at this piece? Well, first of all, I, I, I don't know how the pre-publicity has, has been distributed, but it isn't a piece. It's actually a set of shorter pieces. And it's, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll fill whatever gap I'm given yeah, out of this set of, of things that I sort of have in repertoire at the moment. They're unified by all dealing with, you know, a few really kind of incredibly kind of waffly ideas. They're, they're all fundamentally rooted in hardware. They're okay. rooted in hardware that um, was chosen because when you perform with it, you, you do not have uh, complete control that there is a fair amount of instability in the in the sort of combined performer hardware network, right? Right. You know, like playing piano with I don't know boxing gloves on or something like that. Mm. You know that it's the net it's the net system that redirects your actions. Okay. Right. Right. And a couple of them use software in addition to the circuitry to do certain things that software does better mm. than circuitry that that adds as it were other voices to something that would be more monophonic so mm. so in a sense i use the software as a kind of like an orchestration device okay all right as as a way to sort of create accompaniment around a solo performer and the and the way that the accompaniment behaves is more can I say reliable or predictable if you are to sort of say that, that the, well yeah yeah the, but again the circuitry is like within, unstable again within limits because of course the 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 wonderful thing about working with software is in mm. fact the ability to do decision making within the code mm. right right whereas if you have like a, a hardware sequencer say running on an old school yeah. it just keeps plugging away and doing it and and to right. get it to behave so that it makes variations it requires a lot of tricky work whereas in software right. that kind of thing is in a piece of cake so no it's mm-hmm. it's not that it's it's predictable it's it's merely that as i say it is more rational you can define the, the right. limitations of its behavior like a heuristic model to working with the material right. you know the, the, you, you can put in as much or as little variation as you want in there so it's 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 a mix, but it's not as though you know it's the stern father and the and the two year old running around without his pants on. I mean, you know, it it, <laughs> it it doesn't quite break down as neatly as that. I actually, you know, I have a a, a paper I did on this. You oh, know, yeah? you can look at on the website where I basically talk about to. what I see as being the the compositional and performance implications of the two technologies, the software and and the hardware solutions to problems and how that sort of breaks down in terms of the way you work with the stuff and make decisions. If you go to my website, it's called Semiconducting. From 2011. Yeah, yeah. so you can look at that and that sort of yeah. goes over the generic stuff. It's sure. basically, you know, that this is the kind of set of ideas I'm working with now. A certain number of them have to do with with that kind of interaction. As I say, a circuit-based performance device that has a reasonable amount of instability in it such that it's not completely controllable by the performer. And then uh, in, in some cases, software that is used to essentially uh, build up a, a, a larger orchestration around that solo performance. And these are, these are relatively modest little pieces. I mean, they range from like six minutes to 15 minutes each. And they're, they're somewhat related. I think given our 
predisposition towards experimenting and kind of following our our noses. Uh, this conversation has taken that path. I really enjoy this. This is a thrill. Fine. Very good. Yeah. All righty. All right. Good luck. Yeah, thanks, thanks again. Hey there, this is Michael Palumbo. You're listening to Making Waves. That was my conversation with composer Nicholas Collins. For more information about our Sound Travels Festival and the upcoming concerts featuring Nicholas Collins, Matt Rogalski, Stephanie Moore, and Wendelin Bartley, go to nasa.ca. That's N-A-I-S-A dot C-A.